welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. If you have your Bibles, you're going to want them. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Um, and while you turn there, I will just say, Toph mentioned we're launching Mission of Communities this, this, uh, on the 29th, which is really exciting. And I thought I would just do a little um, reporting, a little celebrating. Uh, this last Sunday, the 8th of, uh, well, last week, last Sunday night, we had 100, and, 100 plus people here in the building, but we have 117 people that have signed up for life groups, which is pretty awesome, uh, pretty awesome. Um, our sweet spot is kind of like 6 to 10, which means that we, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we have 12 life groups, <coughs> and uh, if you do the math, for those of you um, high math folks, uh, 10 times 12 is what? 120, that's 120. So basically, that means that like before a life group has ever met this year, we are at capacity, um, which, is, which is really cool. Um, fear not, those of you that are in life groups, settle in, get to know the people in your group. Uh, our goal is basically between now and uh, January 1st uh, to recruit four to five new life group leaders and train them and kind of get them up to speed and then launch a couple of new, birth a couple of new life groups between uh, now and then. So folks who are <clears throat> either late adopters uh, on the bell curve who have been here for a while and just decided they were going to wait and see how this life group thing panned out, or those who come between now and then. Uh, we hope to have a few new life groups then. So good work, Toffley, wherever you are. Yes. <coughs> uh, good stuff, good stuff. Um, some of you know I'm headed to Israel in a couple of weeks. Uh, I leave on the 27th of October. This is a very, very exciting trip that uh, I have the privilege of, of taking. Um, I've been studying with a rabbi the last couple of years, and so uh, this rabbi, Alan, is leading this trip, and so I'm, I'm, I get to go to Israel for uh, 12 days. Um, so between now and then, we want to start a series called Imagine... Uh, and the idea is, uh, or, or the, the, the series title is, Imagine Stories That Jesus Told. Um, and so this week we're going to look at Matthew chapter 22, which is a story about uh, a wedding banquet that Jesus tells, uh, tells of. Next week, Toph and I are going to team teach. This is the first ever team teaching effort at Awaken, which is, I'm pretty excited about. And then uh, week three, we're going to do Expression Sunday, which we tried this a while back. And a number of you missed that week, and I heard from a whole bunch of you that you missed that, and you were really, really bummed that you missed it. Uh, it was an amazing week, uh, amazing Sunday, just a lot, just a whole Sunday um, of worship, and so a lot of art and a lot of experiences, music, that kind of thing. Ben and Toph are, are heading that up, and then Toph's sort of anchoring this series. The last week I will be in Israel. So um, here's the premise of this series. When Jesus tells stories, certainly we get a glimpse of who God is, right? Uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, uh, we want to see the Father, we want to see God. And Jesus says, well, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. If you have seen me and you've, you've heard me, then you know who God is because I sort of represent God. So when Jesus tells a story, certainly we get a glimpse of who God is, but also... I would say we get a look at this new world. Jesus kind of opens the door or opens the window or paints a picture of a different reality that he calls the kingdom of God. And so we get this world, this picture of Jesus, or, or, or when Jesus tells these stories, we get this picture. And, and the Jews of Jesus' day, if you do any study and research about the, the sort of collective consciousness of the, the people of Israel around Jesus' time, 
there is an absolute anticipation and a hope for something. And it had this kind of a feel that one day Yahweh would return to Israel and would sort of through this messianic person or this messianic figure, um, in, throughout the book of Isaiah, you get this idea of like maybe it's Israel and then sort of later on in Isaiah it sort of turns a corner and then it's like, no, it's actually a person. And so there's this hope, this anticipation that's just running as a current underneath the culture and the time when Jesus was alive and when he was teaching. And so there's this hope that God would return to Israel and would, through this Messiah, would sort of restore Israel and heal the world and, uh, and depending on what group of people you were, either politically Israel would be back at the top or spiritually God would rule in the world again, at, le- at, at the very least that the Jews would not be the bottom of the totem pole and sort of the, the, the butt end of all of everybody's jokes. So there was this hope, this anticipation, and the Psalms, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all talk about this. If you read Isaiah with, the, with these lenses of the return of Yahweh to Zion and the restoration of Israel, you begin to hear it all over the place, especially in Isaiah. So this is a hope that's happening. It's sort of in the, the, the system tray, if you will. And when Jesus tells a story or a parable, it's as if he says, imagine a world where... Imagine a world, dot, dot, dot. And so when he tells these stories, it's an invitation to kind of imagine a new reality or a different kind of tomorrow than the today you experience. And so we want to do that. We want to sort of go with Jesus and imagine a different kind of world. Not as an exercise in some distant land that's unattainable, i.e. heaven after we die, sort of pie in the sky, but rather Actually, a world that Jesus says is in us, among us, around us, within us, right? He says all of these things about the kingdom. So, if you will, Matthew chapter 22, we'll start in verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited, excuse me, to the banquet and to tell them to come. But they refused to come, verse 4. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready, come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest, they seized his servants, they mistreated them, and they killed them. The king was enraged, he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. And so go out to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find and the bad as well as the good. The wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then he told the The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited, but few are chosen. Pray with me if you would. This is a a prayer from uh, an early church father written in like 250 AD. It says this, Lord, inspire us to read your scriptures and meditate upon them day and night. We beg you to give us real understanding of what we need that we may in turn put its wisdom into practice. Yet we know that understanding and good intentions are worthless unless rooted in your graceful love. And so we ask that the words of scripture may also not be just signs on a page, but channels of grace into our hearts. 
Amen. <clears throat> that was a guy named Origen, by the way, if you're interested. Uh, I keep coming back to that prayer. Um, I love it. So depending on how you count, there are 30 different or 30 plus parables that Jesus told. Uh, and among Christians, there are some stock ways of looking at parables. There are some ways that we interpret them or have interpreted them. Because anytime you approach the scriptures, you have to figure out what the meaning is, right? Said differently, the meaning of scripture is not self-evident. It doesn't just rise up off the page and say, this is what it means. When you read the text, you actually have to do the hard work of interpreting it or decoding it, right? Jesus says a parable, which by the way, does anyone have a problem with this parable? Does it, like, especially the ending, does anybody read this one and you're kind of like, what in the world is going on here? Okay, I have never taught this parable because I've hated it. (laughs) It always bothered me. I I read the first part and I'm like, yes, everybody's invited, open the doors. And then this one poor guy doesn't have the right shirt on and he's like sent out the door where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's quite bothersome. So there are some ways that we, uh, so this is not self-evident. This is not, the the meaning doesn't just jump off the page, I don't think. Um, And there are some traditional ways that we have interpreted the parables. I want to offer maybe some language around uh, around it. Here's two two thoughts. Some of this may be a little bit of review. We did a series a long time ago on, on the parables, but I think it bears repeating. One would be kind of eschatological or theological. Eschatology is really just that which comes later or looking towards the future, right? The eschaton is the future kingdom or that which is coming. So eschatological or theological meaning that a parable is read through the lens of theology. Like when Jesus speaks and he teaches a parable, he's trying to tell us something about who God is or or how to understand who God is, which is the study of God, theosology, right? Theos and ology, the study of God. So it's trying to tell us um, who or what God is and, and what God's about. Um, A great lens to read a parable through. Secondly, uh, a a very common one is kind of this existential or this moral one. It's trying to tell us something about what it means to be a moral person in the world. It's a bit like Aesop's fables, you know, like um, it's wisdom stuff. So two very typical angles or ways that we have read parables, and I think they're good at times. Um, But I want to ask a question that will sort of unlock some things for us. And the question is this, what is the nature of a parable? If you think about a parable as not just something that we all know because we find it in the Bible and we sort of take it for granted, but if you step back and you look at it from a totally non-biblical or non-Christian point of view, what is the nature of a parable? So you have a first century Jewish teacher, prophet, um, the rabbis didn't show up until later on, second, third century, but you have a Jewish teacher, prophet, who speaks these stories into a uh, sort of the, the, the culture and the context, you know, these itinerant preachers who would wander around telling these parables, these stories. What's the nature of a parable? What exactly do they do? I want to offer, um, this is uh, two guys named Sachs and Crossan. They do some work on the, the, really the function of literature or the function of literary devices in a social setting. And so they, they look at these five, um, these five sort of categories. The first is a myth. A myth is like a foundational story that constitutes reality or, the, or legitimates the social world in which you live. So myth not meaning like untrue, but myth meaning this is a very large kind of meta-narrative that forms your social context and setting. Right? In America, a myth would be, myth not meaning not true, but a myth that forms and shapes is 
the inalienable right that everybody has to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? This shapes our collective consciousness as a country, and it feeds into this desire or this value that we have of individualism, right? So that's a myth going down apologue. It illustrates uh, and defends the truths of your social world. Uh, going even further down, this is kind of your classic literature action, presents and follows characters through their world and explores the possibilities. So within this kind of context or within this meta narrative, the action uh, literary device really kind of watches or follows characters as they navigate this world. Then they say satire, if you th think of like modern day, uh, this is a little bit of Saturday Night Live, this is Colbert. Um, one time I'd, I'd never heard of this guy and I just found him on the internet and quoted him and I called him Jim Colbert. <laughs> <laughs> At which point somebody from the back is like, it's Colbert. Thank you. <coughs> Satire. Uh, critiques. It attacks the world through subtlety and nuance. Colbert is less than subtle at times, but you get the point, right? So um, an old-fashioned old version of this is Voltaire's Candide. This is, this is called satire. It sort of critiques the culture, but it does it through subtlety and nuance. And last, these guys argue that parable is actually the most subversive literary device that, a, that, a, that a, a person in this context could have used. And it's really, it subverts and undermines the world in which they existed. So now if you insert that understanding into Jesus telling parables, we, they begin to take on totally different shapes and totally different meanings. If what Jesus is doing as a first century Jewish teacher, rabbi, prophet, is subversively using it a, liter a device, a language device, to talk about and critique the culture in which they live, now, we get, now, now things start to get interesting, right? So as Jesus tells the parable, arguably... This is a subversive speech act that Jesus is using that, that many other people in his context and culture would have understood and would have known about. Now, this is where it gets tricky, or I think it gets really interesting. A parable as told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I want to suggest that there's actually a, a, a gap between the original source material that Jesus may have said, which we actually can't access, Right? What we get is a, is a parable told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who actually have an agenda as gospel writers. They're looking backwards, knowing that Jesus and believing that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Messiah, the hope of Israel, and they're infusing meaning back into the stories that Jesus told originally. Does that make a little bit of sense? So the original source material that Jesus would have spoke, this parable... And then how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell that story may actually have some variance. Now, how is this important? Or why is this important? Let me ask a question that kind of provokes a little bit. Why does Matthew change the parable so much? Flip to Luke, if you will. Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's to the right. Uh, Luke chapter 14. Luke tells the same story but it actually has very different, it has some different characters. And Luke's story, Luke's version of the parable is, is the most commonly found one. So if you look outside of the scriptures, this is the most commonly, common version of this parable, right? There are in, in other texts and other books, uh, uh, the Gospel of Thomas and others, not saying that those are canonical, but this story, this version of the story is found there. So here's what Luke says. Luke 14, verse uh, 16, says this. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. 
But they all alike began making excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master that the owner, then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, excuse me, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town, bringing in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what are, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master said, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them all to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So Matthew and Luke are telling the same source material, the same parable that Jesus told, but they're different, right? They're similar enough that we believe that it was the same story or the same source material, but they have very different characters and very different outcomes, very different um, ends to the game. Why? Why is there this gap that between what Luke says and what Matthew says? Why has Matthew changed the material so much? These are the questions that I find just very, very interesting and very compelling. Certainly there is a gap between Jesus' original parable and the, and the version that Matthew tells or reports in his gospel. How and why? I want to suggest that it's because Matthew's audience is Jewish. Matthew's audience, when Matthew writes his gospel, the intended audience, the people that would have gotten this gospel or the letter that it was written to, the recipients of Matthew's version are Jewish primarily, by and large, a Jewish audience, which is a stark contrast to, math, to Luke and Mark's audience. Mar- Luke and Mark's audience were Gentiles, or what they would call God-fearers in this day and age. These are people who were Gentile, non-Jews, but who knew of the story of Israel and maybe even participated in some of the, the temple rituals, but they were not Jewish, right? Matthew's gospel begins, does anybody remember how Matthew starts the gospel? It's a really, really long lineage. It's a history going all the way back from like Abraham. He starts way, 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 way back and he draws this line through all these people, all of Israel's greatest people, all of Israel's finest, all the way up to, G- to Jesus. Why? Because it's important for Matthew that these Jewish people know that this Jesus who is ru- crucified and now resurrected is the Messiah, the hope of Israel, the one that Yahweh has promised. So Matthew does that because his audience is Jewish. So a parable about a king instead of a man and a son instead of a party, right? A wedding has in mind Yahweh and Israel and the age to come. Remember back what we we said earlier, this hope that Israel has, right? This current that's just in the system tray. That God would one day, Yahweh would one day return to Israel and through this Messiah bring about this age to come. Matthew is substituting a couple of people here. He's saying that Jesus is the Messiah and this age to come that you hope for, Jesus is calling the kingdom of God. Matthew intentionally substitutes this king and a son for, or for a man, which is a, uh, uh, the, the king and the son, certainly a reference to Israel. The Psalms talk about Israel as the sons of God and the daughters of God. He substitutes this wedding for a banquet Uh, which is a common motif in the scriptures for Israel. And then there's this destruction of the city. Many people believe that if Matthew's writing like in in the rearview mirror, right, he's looking back in time, uh, post probably most likely after 70 AD, that this was a late ad, verse 7, where it says, and the king went out and destroyed their city, destroyed all the people and burned their city. 
It's a late ad referencing Rome's destruction of Israel in AD 70. Then there's the kicker of the guy with no clothes or the guy with not the right clothes, right? So this king has this wedding. He invites all the people. The people who he's invited don't want to come. They give him all kinds of excuses. He sends out messengers to to bring them in. They kill the messengers. The king gets really upset, destroys the people, and burns their city, and then invites anybody and everybody. And then at the last moment, there's this turn, which is very, very... uh, uh, not predictable, but it's not surprising that, at, that in a parable there's a twist at the end, like kind of, what? what's going on here? Somebody doesn't have the right clothes on, and he's cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's try to understand it from Matthew's perspective. Matthew takes the source material because he's writing to Jews who would have killed who he believes it to be the Messiah, and he uses this context to frame the parable or to tell the parable. Imagine a God who invites all of Israel to a wedding banquet, a feast. And imagine a God who has spared no expense, who pulls out all the stops, the fattened calf, the ox, and the cattle, everything is on the table. And imagine all of the guests whom God has personally invited and and covenanted with deny the invitation and imagine God sends out messengers to communicate how badly, in fact, he wants them to be at the table and how the world will be blessed through them And they don't respond, but rather they actually kill the messengers that God has sent. And so God swings the doors wide open to anyone and everyone. The nobodies, the outcasts, the marginalized, the hated, the poor, those without the proper credentials and the proper wedding tire are invited in and they are clothed with wedding clothes. They are clothed with clothing for such an occasion. The assumption is that if this guy is the only one without the clothes and everybody is a nobody, then nobody had the right clothes coming in, but they were provided the opportunity to wear the proper attire for this wedding, right? Remember the story. The people who are now invited are the nobodies. They're the outcasts. They're on the edges. They're on the margins. Clearly, people who do not have the proper attire for such an occasion. And yet there's one person who doesn't have it, which suggests a choice that's being made. And so God swings the doors wide open. And these people are without proper credentials, without wedding attire, are clothed with the clothing for such an occasion, and it's free. It's a gift. It's grace. And then imagine one person says no. Imagine one person says, I will not clothe myself with the proper attire for such an occasion. I will not. I will deny the clothing provided for me by the host, the clothing that I was actually made to wear, where I can dine with the king who has brought me. This would be a very startling kind of slap in the face to the host who's provided. Now, we, uh, we live in a culture, you and I, we live in a culture of accommodation and tolerance, right? If one of the top values of American culture is individualism, which arguably it is, not critiquing it, just saying it is, if individualism is one of the top values we hold as a culture, where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, where I can pursue my dreams so long as I don't hurt somebody else, then what follows then is tolerance, where we tolerate one another. Even if I don't agree with you, so long as you're not hurting somebody else, I have to tolerate you because this is the value that we hold of individualism. We live in a culture where tolerance is at the top of the list. And so everybody loves a story where everyone is invited, right? Like we're all, yes, yes, yes. We love it. Everybody gets in. The the doors swing wide open. 
<clears throat> I think I finally got that one. <clears throat> the doors swing wide open. Prostitutes, crooked politicians, ruthless and arrogant businessmen and women, serial killers, child molesters, mothers and fathers who, who, who damage their children for life, even you and me. We're all invited. Everybody's invited. We love that story. Love wins. <laughs> this is the paradoxical nature of the kingdom. And I would say this is the sharp edge of the parable. We love a story where everybody's invited. Where our past is our past. And where we are invited to sit at a table we do not belong at. Man, that's gospel. That's the great. That's grace. But this is the paradox, and I would suggest the strength of the love of God. Imagine a world where all of these people are invited to the party. While on the one hand, we are all invited to come into the kingdom, we are all invited to participate at the wedding, we are all invited to sit at the table and to feast with the creator who made us. And yet we are invited and commanded to repent and to put on clothes of the kingdom. These are the clothes of forgiveness and of healing and of restoration, of justice and mercy, of love and of holiness. You cannot attend the party for the inauguration of the kingdom that is defined by these things and not want to wear them. Let me say that again. You cannot attend the party for the inauguration of the kingdom that is defined by these things and not want to wear them. Which this confronts our American sensibilities, right? Hey, I know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. I know I can do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But the invitation of Jesus is actually counterintuitive. It counters that. And it says, no, actually you may not know what's best for you. The invitation of Jesus is to trust that his kingdom is good, that his heart is good. That his kingdom is in fact our heart's true home and until we find ourselves in it, we will find ourselves wandering in longing. Imagine a world and a kingdom where everyone is invited, where God's love is strong and fierce and where anything less than what you were truly made by God to be is unacceptable. where we are clothed in our truest identities and we are clothed in the character of the kingdom of God, where we wear righteousness and justice and mercy and love and grace like a garment. Oh, but the battle that rages in us, right? One artist, poet, songwriter says, there is war in my blood and love ain't the tune in my lungs. The question is, do you believe it? Can you trust it? Can you trust that you have been invited to a table and that whatever garment you are offered at the door is actually who you were made to be? And that it is not an affront to your personal individual freedoms or your rights, but it's actually who you were made to be whatever the garment is that you're asked to put on to sit in the presence of the God who made you it is 
No one is holding out on you. Genesis 3 and the serpent, it's actually a lie. And what you're being offered is life, true life. I want to offer an opportunity for us to think a little bit. This is a series called Imagine, and so we want to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond and uh, maybe hear what God might be saying. Um, and so we've done this before uh, in church tradition. This is called cataphatic prayer uh, or imaginative prayer. Um, St. Ignatius of Loyola, 15th, 16th century-ish, um, offers this idea that to the degree that we can imagine something in our mind's eyes, to the degree that we can and will be changed by it. And so if we have an image of God that is inaccurate and incorrect, we're actually transformed by that image. Uh, and we know things are true because we picture them in our minds. You know that your house is green because you see it, not because there's zeros and ones going through your brain, but because you see it. You know the, what your spouse looks like because you see them in your mind's eye. So to the degree that we can imagine something, picture it in our mind, is the degree to which we can understand it to be true and know it to be true. So if you would, uh, I'm going to just lead you. Um, ben and uh, Andrew are going to play a little bit um, underneath this, and I just want to offer you an opportunity. I'm going to kind of walk you to a point and then just see what God does with you and for you. Um, so if you would, close your eyes or, or uh, whatever you want to do to kind of find some space. <clears throat> and then Ben's going to play a song uh, that kind of, I think, really ties into this idea that the love of God is all at once graceful and beautiful and lovely. And at the same time, it is, it's strong and it demands something of us. So if you would, just imagine a party of epic proportion. I mean, the finest of China. No expense has been spared. The shimmer of crystal on the table. And it is all there. hand is the invitation with your name on it. What color is the ink? What does it look like? Who do you think wrote that? And so you make your way to the door. And you're met by the loveliest of hosts. Who has this sense of, I knew you were coming. I knew you would be here. I'm so glad to see you. And then they offer you this garment. covers something that is not true of you. 
and asks you to step into something that is true of you. And you have a choice. Do you trust this loveliest of hosts? That in fact, what is in Jesus' heart for you is life. I don't know what the garment is. I don't know what it covers up. And this is where I leave you. And you consider, what is it? What is that choice? What is that habit? What is that disposition? What is that emotion? That is not who God made me to be. What does it feel like to put on who you were made to be? Not because you can do it, because God offers it as grace. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.